0: Work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers Coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift. So order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code THEPAST. For $5 Hine, off Hine, any Hine, gift Hine, subscription. Copy. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 21 of The Past and the Curious. I am the host and creator, Mick Sullivan. I really appreciate you pressing play on the podcast, and be sure to subscribe if you enjoy it. Now, it's May, and that means school will be out soon for many of the listeners out there. And as a part of the Kids Listen sweeps, we've created a show around the theme of schools out. Summer makes you think of a lot of things. One of the big things we think of, taking a trip, traveling. So we've got two great stories and a song from the past about some pretty epic journeys. Later in the show, you're gonna hear the voice of Will Oldham, also known as Bonnie Prince Billy, when he's making music for the world. He'll tell you the story of John Ledyard. But first, here's Melinda Beck with a story about two men, a car, and a dog.
1: Heading down the street, any day of the week you shouldn't be surprised to see a car pass by with a happy dog hanging his head out the window. How many times have you seen it? It's always a fun sight, and with most things, there had to be a first time a dog was seen in such a circumstance. Well, there was a first, and his name was Bud. And as this bulldog's luck would turn out, he didn't even have to hang his head out the window. He just had to sit there, because the car had no windshield. It was one of the first horseless buggies, or motor carriages, which is how people often referred to cars at the time. He shared the front seat of this 1903 Winton Motor Company vehicle, which his owner had named The Vermont, with two men. A lot of people thought little of the horseless buggies at this time.
0: It's just a fad. It'll pass. You just wait and see. It
1: can't compete with a horse.
0: Bah, loud and untrustworthy. Bah, I say.
1: In a lot of ways, they were right. There were hardly any roads, so getting stuck was a real problem. Also, the first real gas station wouldn't show up until 1905 in the city of St. Louis. Though most general stores would have gasoline available, it wasn't something you could count on. But some people understand huge strides in technology when they see it and want to push the limits. Horatio Jackson was one such man. He had been a doctor in Vermont, but he retired after a bout of tuberculosis. He was still pretty young, but it didn't matter. His wife was rich, so he could do whatever he wanted, really, without having to worry about money too much. What it was that he wanted to do didn't reveal itself to him until they were visiting San Francisco. They had bought a pair of cars and taken driving lessons. The cars were shipped back to Vermont, and Horatio's wife had headed that way, too, via train. Horatio had another idea. One night, while talking with strangers and friends about the positives and negatives of the automobile, he remarked that he could drive all the way across America. It had never been done before. Oh, balderdash, you cannot, someone probably said. I should say, I indubitably can, he probably replied. Bet you can't, someone else said. Yeah, how much you want to bet? Fifty bucks. Fifty dollars? Fifty bucks, you got three months. Oh, it's on like Donkey Kong. What? Uh, don't worry about it. So, Horatio did what all sensible men would do after making a $50 bet of this sort. He went out and bought a $3,000 car, which was actually $500 more than the original owner had paid for it earlier in the year. Horatio had hired another man named Sewell Crocker to join him. Sewell was a professional bicyclist who worked in an engine factory. His skills would help if, um, when the car broke down. And in the event that they needed help... In addition to gas stations, this was a time before phones, Sewell could pedal his bike towards the next town for help. The men tore the back seat out of the car and piled it humorously high with everything they would need to drive 3,000 miles across the country. In addition to no windshield, the car had no roof, so the pile of necessities rose like a mountainous junk heap from the back of the car. Tent? Check. Sleeping bags? Check. Tools and engine block? Check, check. Cooking supplies? Check. Raincoats? Check. Fishing poles? Check. Gas cans? Check. Dog? Dog? Dog.
0: We don't have a dog, Horatio.
1: Yes, I see. Very well. We shall pick one up along the way. They left in late May of 1903. Driving through the desert was a terrible idea, so they intended to head north towards Washington State and then head east in essentially a straight line towards Chicago. It's estimated at this time that in all of America, there were only about 150 miles of paved road. Horatio, Sewell, and the Vermont would not travel on much of that paved roadway at all. It was paths, plank roads, and mostly mud. If you can believe that such technologies would literally cross paths, while driving their automobile, the men encountered families and wagons heading west and even had to get the help of cowboys with lassos to pull the car from some sticky mud. Many people were astounded to see such an unfamiliar, self-powered automobile. They attracted a lot of attention when they were actually around people. In Idaho, one of Horatio's wishes came true. They had left their hotel, but turned around because he had forgotten something. On the errand, he was approached by a man. Psst.
0: Hey. Hey, man. Hey. Yeah, you. You're Horatio, right? Do you want to buy
1: a... dog? This is how Horatio explained it in a letter to his wife. On our way back, we were stopped by a man and asked if I didn't want a dog for a mascot. As I had been trying to steal one, we were glad to meet him and accepted the present for a consideration of $15. So Bud is now with us. Stolen? Come on, Horatio. Were you really going to steal a dog? Let's just assume he had a strange sense of humor, I guess. In any case, Bud, the not-stolen-but-fairly-paid-for-albeit-under-strange-circumstances bulldog, was given a spot in the front seat. He was also given his own pair of driving goggles to keep the prairie dust out of his eyes. His ride was an incredibly bumpy one. Remember, there were no real roads, and the car left a lot to be desired in the smooth-ride department. He made the most of it and got very good at watching the road ahead to prepare for any major bumps and dips. One time, they got stuck in the mud and they had to be pulled out with a team of horses, and Bud got to bark at the big creatures. There was a lot of waiting, too. Replacing the tires or the many other parts that gave up during the arduous trek required finding a telegraph office and ordering them and waiting for delivery via train and horse. As advanced as the automobile was technologically, it was still dependent on horses and trains to solve its problems. As the trip went on towards the better roads and cities of the Midwest, they were surprisingly still on schedule and garnering attention not just from the transcontinental car trip, but from their mascot, Bud, who had become famous for his regal posture and awesome doggy goggles. Everyone wanted to see him, which created a few problems. Sometimes the men would head into a business to take care of something, perhaps buying food or mailing a letter. They would leave Bud outside to guard the mountain of stuff in the car. After a while, though, people recognized him and, well, they didn't love the idea of leaving him alone any longer. While arriving in Chicago to great fanfare, it appears they lost track of Bud for a while. A paper wrote that Bud had gotten it into his head to see the city and that his owners and others chased him around for some time before he could be found. From there, the race against the three-month bet seemed realistic to win. Despite all the rough roads and setbacks in the West, they sailed from Chicago to the East Coast quickly. It was at 4.30 in the morning on July 26th that they rolled down Fifth Avenue in New York, completing the journey in 63 days, 12 hours, and 30 minutes. $8,000 later, Horatio could collect his $50 earnings, but it was worth it in his eyes to show the world the potential of the automobile, which of course took over the country within decades. As for Bud, he lived out the rest of his days in the Jackson House in Vermont and was always happy to hop in and ride shotgun anytime Horatio took one of the cars around town.
0: guys it's quiz time it's quiz time it's quiz time 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 ladies and gentlemen it is quiz time as you hear and here we go question number one perhaps the quickest but probably the most complicated way to travel around the world is to go to space and let earth do all the work for you by rotating do you know who the first human in space was? Turns out he was a Russian cosmonaut named Yuri Gagarin. And on April 12th, 1961, his spacecraft left Russia and made its way into orbit. The first man in space had begun his professional career as a steelworker's apprentice. And he would also spend time coaching basketball for an industrial technical school in Russia. So I guess that means it's time for question number two, and I'll put it to you like this. There are lots of ways to get around, and in 1818, Carl Drey invented something which came to be known as the dandy horse. Do you know which modern day vehicle it most closely resembles? The German inventor called it the Laufmachine, but it was also known as a velocipede or the great name Dandy horse. It is essentially a bicycle with no pedals. A person powers it by moving their feet on the ground, while the two large wheels like the bike wheels you have, they aid the motion and momentum, sort of like a balance bike that many kids still learn on today. And your third and final question is In 1889 journalist. And circumnavigator Nellie Bly finished her remarkable trip around the world. If you have listened to episode 9 of The Past and the Curious, you may remember how many days did it take her to complete the trip. Inspired by Jules Verne's book Around the World in 80 Days, Nellie Bly made the trip in 72 days. 72 days 6 hours 11 minutes and 14 seconds to be exact check out episode 9 of the past and the curious for the whole story
2: There were very few Americans in the 1700s who were as well-traveled as he, and no matter where he went, people noticed John Ledyard. It may have been the unmistakable spark of adventure in his eyes or the confident swagger of his personality, but more likely it was because his hands were covered in tattoos. Closely spaced red-brown dots covered the tops of his hands and traveled up his arms. This was unusual, to say the least, and the permanent ink grabbed the attention and curiosity of nearly everyone he met. In fact, many historians believe that he may have been the first Euro-American to be tattooed. He was born in Connecticut, to a family of modest means, more so after his father died. Under pressure from his uncle, he enrolled in college at Dartmouth University in the school's third year of existence, but he never really got comfortable there, One morning, young Ledyard decided to disappear after finally realizing college was simply not for him. Rarely had he even gone to class, earning a reputation for spending more time with the nearby Iroquois people and learning what he could of their language and lifestyle. But in 1773, getting away was not easy nor quick. He was a hundred miles or more from home and without a horse, So John did what anyone needing to make a quick escape would do at this time. He felled a tree and started making a canoe. When it was done, days later, and curiously no one had discovered or cared of his absence, he pointed the boat towards home. John spent the next week paddling the Connecticut River towards his grandfather's farm. Hungry for adventure, he quickly found work on ships to the Caribbean and Barbary Coast, And just as the American Revolution was beginning, he wound up as a Marine on Captain Cook's third and final voyage. Cook was world-famous for his ambitious exploring expeditions in the Pacific Ocean. His ships made the first European contact with Tahiti, Australia, and New Zealand. On his third trip, with John Ledyard aboard, they again stopped in Tahiti. This is where John would receive his tattoos. From there they went to Hawaii and then towards the American coast. When John stood on the foggy coast near what today is Vancouver, an idea bubbled in his brain. He returned to America with a two-step plan. He'd write a book about the Cook voyage, which he knew would be a hot seller. People loved adventure and learning of far-off places, but they also liked a little drama. And drama there was. It was on this third famous voyage that Captain Cook lost his life when he crossed native Hawaiians who had initially adored him. Ledyard was one of the few people at the time who understood that maybe the natives had a point in not trusting the Europeans showing up on their beautiful island. Step two of his plan would be to use some money from book sales and hopefully some of his resulting celebrity to start a fur trade on the West Coast. The book worked out to a degree, but the fur trade never did. Sometimes when one door closes, another opens. While in Paris looking for people with money to help with his fur trade goals, he met the American ambassador to France, a man named Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was probably intrigued by the man who said he had seen the west coast of America and had stood in Russian trading camps across the sea to boot. He was probably also intrigued by the speckled tattoos and shabby clothes Ledyard wore. He always seemed to have just spent the last of his money. More than anything, though, he was intrigued by the outlandish proposal John Ledyard offered. This was decades before Jefferson would send the Lewis and Clark expedition out west in search of a waterway from the Mississippi River to the west. They would never find it, mostly because it doesn't exist, But the journey would be valuable still. Well, that wasn't a new idea to Jefferson. John Ledyard had suggested he himself do something similar in 1786, nearly 20 years before Lewis and Clark. But whereas Lewis and Clark would eventually head west from the Kentucky and Missouri areas towards the Pacific, John planned to start where they would end, at the ocean, and walk all the way to the cities of the East Coast. His big problem, though, was that he couldn't afford a boat to take him to the west coast of the American continent. How would he get to the west coast otherwise? This led to another solution to the problem he and Jefferson were trying to solve. He'd go alone. He'd have little more than a hatchet and two dogs. And he'd start in London make his way across Europe, all the way across the enormous landmass of Russia and the frosty Siberian tundra, hoping to cross the Bering Strait with a Russian fur vessel. From there, it was his plan to walk from Alaska to the eastern shore of America. He brashly promised he'd walk right into the American capital and share all he had learned. Two dogs? Two dogs. A hatchet? A hatchet. And you're going to walk... The whole way? Well, I imagine I can hop onto the occasional sleigh through the frozen Russian wilderness. There is a main road for this sort of travel, I hear,
0: but yeah, a lot of walking.
2: The men thought of the discoveries, the information, the relationships with Native Americans in the West, the elusive Northwest Passage, not to mention the fame that would come with being a global circumambulator, which is a very exact phrase describing one who walks around the world. The possibilities were vast. There were just 12,000 or more miles of arduous travel in between all of that. Easy as pie. Unfortunately for John, the ruler of Russia, a German-born woman known as Catherine the Great, believed it was her pie, and she was not interested in sharing any of it with John. After walking through the frozen European countryside, John traveled for 11 weeks on the one frozen road that carried sleighs of trade goods, exiled criminals, and other travelers across Russia. He endeared himself to many, but it was impossible to go unnoticed and not arouse suspicion. He was an American, didn't really speak the language, and was, as you remember, tattooed He made it as far as Yakutsk, over 6,000 miles or 10,000 kilometers from where he started. Hearing a man he knew from the Cook expedition was behind him, he backtracked to join him in Irkutsk. Strength in numbers, John figured. But it would not work out. Catherine officially labeled him as a French spy, but more likely she did not want an American becoming too familiar with the eastern portion of Russia. At this time, Alaska was a part of Russia, and it would be so for nearly 100 more years. She knew Americans wanted to eventually control all of their own continent. Beyond that, who knew? Better to keep the mystery of the Russian Western Wilds a secret in her eyes. So her guards snagged him. Though he had traveled a staggering 6,000 miles over land in a time before cars, Ledyard would never finish the epic journey. We don't know what happened to the two dogs he traveled with. They probably did not enjoy the same luxuries as Horatio's bulldog, Bud. But we do know what became of John. He was taken on a bumpy sleigh ride all the way back across Russia on the same frozen road he had traveled before. When they finally reached the edge of the Russian Empire, he was tossed unceremoniously over the border into Poland, gathering himself he headed back to London. Thomas Jefferson would have to find someone else to explore the American continent, which he would do in 1803 when Lewis and Clark made history.
0: Lost all my money, but it too surely is a train boy surely is a train
2: black smoke is rising and it surely is a train hey.
0: really want to thank will oldham for being on the show chaska powers from book power for kids for his cameo in the john ledyard story and also my good friend melinda beck thank you all so much we appreciate you being here and thank you for listening i need to give out some patreon shout outs thank you danica and thank you xander danica and xander thank you so very much if you would like to make this a little bit more financially responsible of me and would like to give me a little bit more money so I'm not just throwing it in the wind, um, you can do that at Patreon.com. Find the passing and the Curious. We'll also have a link on our website. You should also know that we are part of Kids Listen, and Kids Listen Sweeps is going on right now. So there's a bunch of shows that have created an episode about the same Schools Out theme. I recommend you guys check out Tumble. I really think a lot of our listeners would like the show Tumble. The science podcast for kids and there's also a new kid on the block it's called noodle loaf as a musician as a music lover man i love this show it is super super creative Um, it's father and kids and it is top notch you got to go check it out noodle loaf thank you all for listening if you want more go back and listen to our back catalog we have lots and lots of great episodes so go back enjoy and we'll talk to you in the month of june I'm Mick Sullivan, and this has been The Past and the Curious. Thank you so much. The Past past. past. And 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 the Curious.